the start. You missed all the fun stuff, and now you get me speaking to you. <laughs> but the Bible is awesome, so... Okay, guys, so just before I start, I just want to advertise one quick thing, and that is uh, not this Friday, but next Friday. We know you guys are studying hard. We know some of you are studying hard. Uh, so we decided a good way for you guys to have a break is to do some exercise. But the way the exercise works is we're going to do a Mall of Africa amazing race. So what that means is, uh, and this is for you guys on Zoom as well. So, um, and there's three people, there's three teens on Zoom as well, guys. So we've also got a lot of people there, maybe four now. Um, so, so what we're going to do is we're going to run around. There's, there's going to be clues. You're going to be in teams. You're going to run around the Mall of Africa answering the clues. It's not going to be stuff like um, being a, like impersonate a waiter for five seconds and try to get people. It's not like that kind of stuff. It's like you have to just like find stuff in windows and things like that, um, or run down to the parking and find a piece of paper stuck to the side of a SUV. I don't know, something like that. It's that kind of stuff. And so it's really fun. Uh, I've done a few of them before, and you mostly spend the rest of the, your night laughing your face off. And then at the end, we'll meet together and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, hang out for a bit, just socialize, that kind of stuff. So we'll let you know next week what the actual detailed plans are, uh, like how it's going to work, where you're going to meet us, all of that stuff. Um, but just for now, book off, not this Friday, but next Friday, okay? So it's your exam break time. So when your parents say, why are you going to youth? You should be studying. You should be like, I'm, I've studied, okay? I've done enough. I'm taking a break. That is it. Okay. Right, I'm taking this off. Let me pray for us because we're going to head into the book of Job again. And uh, James, while I'm praying, if you can just organize the slides to be behind me. Cool. Okay. Father God, we are so grateful that you are the God of the universe, that your spirit works. Uh, and Father, I really, really do pray that your spirit works in us. Um, at the end of the day, we're not here for ourselves. We're here for you. And we want you to show yourselves, show yourself in such a way that we are just so joyful because of you and because of what you do in our lives. Uh, so I really pray that you change us. I pray this in your name. Amen. Ah, thank you, James. Okay. All right, so we've had a discussion now uh, on the book of Job. Um, just a quick, I'm just going to give a quick recap of, of what's been going on in the book of Job so that you're just aware I'm just going to really, really quickly recap the first two chapters. I'm not going to do a detailed recap, uh, so if you want a detailed recap, go listen to the previous sermons. Um, but basically what's happened so far is um, there's this guy called Job. He is uh, a righteous man. He is innocent. And because he is such a righteous man, because he's a godly man, because he loves the Lord, he gets blessed with a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of gifts, a secure life. His life looks great. He's got a great family. He's got a great house. Everything is going absolutely well. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 1, he's known as the greatest man in all of the East. That's how blessed he is. He's got so much money that he's like Bill Gates. You know, he's great in that sense. A lot of wealth. Everything's going great in his life. And then from verse 6 onwards of chapter 1, we have this scene where God and Satan have this discussion in heaven. And God sort of boasts about Job and says, look at this guy, Job. Look how awesome he is. Look at all the stuff 
that he, look just how great and godly he is and I've blessed him because of it. And then Satan responds back and Satan goes, maybe, maybe his, his heart is not really in it for you, Lord. Maybe his heart is in it for the stuff that he gets. Like maybe he doesn't actually care about you. It's just that you're a God who's like his blesser. So you just give him stuff. And then Satan says, take away the stuff. And let's see if he's really in it for you or not. And so God says, okay, we'll take away the stuff. And, um, and Satan says that, that if you do take away his stuff, he will curse you to your face. In other words, he'll get angry at you. He'll say, God, why are you doing this? This is the kind of stuff that we say when we're suffering, right? God, why me? God, you're a terrible God because of this, or you're an evil God, you're a horrible God, or whatever. We say things about God that are not worthy of him. That's what it means to curse him. And so all the stuff gets taken away. Um, and in fact, this happens over two occasions. Uh, in chapter 1, he loses his house. He loses most of his family except for his wife. They're actually crushed under a building. I mean, that's horrific. Um, he loses everything that he owns. And then uh, to top it off, after that, Satan tempts, tests him again and like, takes away his physical health. So he's left at the end of chapter 2 in this hectic state of depression. He's sitting in a pile of ash, and he's at the outside of the city, and he's picking his own sores, which is like a depressed person would cut themselves. He's basically doing something the equivalent because he's just he's, he's numb. He's lost the ability to feel pain. He is not, none of us in our lives hopefully will ever go through that kind of extreme suffering where you are not only just a healthy person, but you're like the greatest person in the land and you basically lose everything and become the most ungreatest person. Um, he's basically a homeless guy covered in sores and he's also lost his relationship with God in a sense. Uh, his whole worldview has been thrown upside down. Um, it's not that God has stopped relating to him. But it's just that he, he's confused about God. Like the, the one person who he loved the most in his life seems to have betrayed him. Uh, so if you think about it, imagine like losing everything, but also the person you love the most in your life has just turned their back on you. He's in horrific pain. And so now we're at the point where his friends come to try and help him. And this is what you guys have been discussing now in your small groups about just the kind of answers that they give to Job. And, and, the thing that's, that kind of starts everything off uh, is that his friends, I just need to let you know this, that his friends are actually caring. So they say the wrong thing. I'm letting you know up front, but they're not saying it because they don't like Job. They're saying it because this is how they, this is the only way they know to care for somebody. And actually what happens in the first beginning of this, uh, just at the end of chapter two, before you hit chapter three, is his friends actually for a whole week, they just sit with him, which is such a caring thing to do. They don't speak. You know, sometimes when our friends are suffering, the first thing we do is we just, we just like, well, maybe you're suffering because of this. And actually, a really caring thing to do is to sometimes just sit, just be there for the person. You don't have to speak. And so they do that. So they're really caring. But then what happens is they then do decide to speak. Now, what I've done is I've decided the way, the best way to approach this talk is to do it kind of like a court case. Um, and the reason I've chosen a court case is because just the way it's written, the, the chapters in Job, it kind of appears like a court case. So what happens is the friends of Job see him suffering, um, 
And, and here's how they understand how suffering works. You do evil and God punishes you with suffering. You do good and God blesses you with good things. That's how they view the world, okay? So they see Job is suffering and they go, well, because he is suffering, he must have done something wrong in his life. However, Job knows that he hasn't done anything wrong. So he feels like he's innocent. So if you picture the court scene, the honorable judge comes and sits in a chair. So you can change the slide. The honorable judge comes and sits in a chair and says, Hear ye, hear ye, today's court case is the suffering of Job. And the purpose of this meeting is to find out if Job is in fact the reason for his own suffering. Now in court what you often have is you have someone who is accused of a crime. Uh, yes, the accuser sits there. And you have, uh, they are called the accused. And then they'll have accusers which are basically people pointing their fingers at the accused. And they're saying, you did the crime! So they will give evidence as to why they think the accused has done the crime. And after all the accusations, the accused then has a chance to defend themselves. Okay, so you've got it, you've got the accused, which is going to be Job, and you've got the accusers, okay? So what happens is... In some of these chapters, Job is put on the trial seat. And uh, he sits here, so you can see this should be a Job, should be appearing there. So that's Job. <laughs> you know when your sermon goes live on YouTube and a comment comes like that? Thank goodness no one can see you. This, this, this. Random teenager that rocked up today just happened to say something offensive about David Cavetti. <laughs> and you can picture, so, so you can picture the judge saying, well, we'll now hear from the accusers as to why Job is guilty. So the accusers start, and they say a couple of things. In fact, they say a couple of chapters worth of things. But it's basically summarized in these verses, and these were the verses that you read in your small groups. So uh, it's Job 4 verse 8, uh, so you can change the slide. And it says, I, verse 4 verse 8 says, As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Chapter 8 verse 4, If your children have sinned against him, which is God, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. And finally, Zophar uh, speaks, and and um, and he says this: Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. So he actually says to Job, "You're getting less than what you deserve. You deserve worse." Imagine that's a caring friend, right? <laughs> so, in other words, Job's. They say to Job, this is how God works. And it's something we've already said. God says that you reap what you sow. If you do wrong, then evil will happen. And if you do good, then you will be blessed. Here's the evidence, Job. Look at you. You're covered in sores. You've lost everything. Therefore, the evidence is 
You, you are the evidence. You must have done something wrong in order to get what you've, what you've got. So you can kind of imagine him looking at Job, Job saying, confess, confess, you've done something wrong and this is why you are being punished the way you are. And so Job responds, and now just remember, I'm using this, this metaphor, this courtroom is a metaphor, it's not really written as a courtroom scene. Um, but Job replies and, and he says back to them, he says, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. And he says this, so uh, there should be chapter 6, verse 24, appearing behind me now. So, yes, that's it. So he says, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I've actually gone astray. So he's like, I'm not going to talk if you can actually show me what I've done wrong. Chapter 7, verse 20, if I sin, what did I do to you, you watcher, O God of mankind? What have I done wrong? What have I actually done that's offensive? In chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, it says, Though I, I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. So in other words, if he'd, have the, if he'd have to confront God, he'd actually be a bit afraid, and he's probably thinking, I'm going to say something stupid. And he says, Though I'm blameless, he would somehow, God would find a way to prove me perverse. And he's like, in verse 21, he says, I am blameless. So he's like, I am blameless. I've done nothing wrong. And he's not lying. He's not like on a lot of courtroom cases where people have done something wrong and they're like, no, I haven't done anything wrong. He is actually in the right. He hasn't done anything wrong. And this kind of, this kind of conversation, although I'm showing you one scene in a courtroom, this conversation actually ha- happens over and over again in the book of Job. First, the friends say, you've done something wrong. You've done something wrong. Confess, confess. And Job is like, no, I haven't done something wrong. And that cycle keeps happening, keeps happening. And as you read Job's responses, you discover, you discover something else that he does. He tries to shift the accusations over to God himself. He tries to say, I'm not responsible for my suffering, but actually God is. So in other words, God should actually be on that trial seat. The reason he does this is because he thinks to himself, if the rules are this, if here's the rules, do evil and you'll be punished. And do good and you'll be blessed. Well, Job's thinking, I follow the rules. You know, I've done what the teacher says. Yet somehow the teacher is still punishing me. Right? If you're in school and you're following the rules and your teacher is getting angry at you, you're like, well, there can't be something wrong with me. So therefore, naturally, there must be something wrong with you, the teacher. So Job tries to place God on trial. I quoted chapter 9 earlier, but look at the rest of chapter 9. It says, I'm going to carry, read what I originally read from verse 20. It says, though I'm in the right, uh, my mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me preserved. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say, and he points to God. God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, God mocks at the calamity of the innocent. In other words, God is happy that the innocent are being persecuted. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? So he tries to put God on trial. And actually there are points where Job actually calls God to actually come and speak. So you progress through the 35 chapters and you begin to anticipate If you're reading this like a novel, you begin to anticipate the coming of God into the courtroom. 
And when he does, he does this incredible thing where he flips everything on its head. So God arrives in chapter 38. And if you picture our courtroom drama, you can picture like the back doors swinging open, right? You know, picture like a movie. And everybody goes silent and all the heads just go. You know that thing? And then like it's like that awkward moment. And then but it's awkward because it's like you suddenly realize the presence of God is entering and it's awesome. So Job has has been the one questioning him. So if you picture our courtroom scene, God like walks through and then he just he just speaks solely to Job. And we're going to see that what he says is totally not what we would expect. And in fact, it's very much one of those mic drop situations. God actually owns the moment. So I'm not going to read everything that God says, because blacks will be preaching on this in a few weeks' time. But look at how the conversation starts. 38 verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. That's why there's a picture. It should be a whirlwind. Next slide, please. That slide's coming. Okay. So then Job, then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind. He came in power and he said, Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? He's basically saying, Who are you? He already owns Job from the beginning and says, You are speaking and you actually don't know what you're saying. He says, Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make known to me. He's already actually saying, who, who is the one who deserves respect here? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you understand. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He carries on like this. He continues talking about things in creation. And he, he continually gives these jabs at Job, asking Job if he was there when those things were created. If, he under, if Job understands how all these things work. And of course, Job can't. He's human, right? But God is reminding him of these things because God is trying to remind Job of one thing. He's showing Job that he is far more, God is far more complex and sophisticated than Job can ever imagine. Let me explain. So God has picked up the biggest problem in the courtroom. And it's not Job. And it's not his friends. It's the way they actually think about God. The way these friends think God works in suffering is that you do good and you get blessed and you do evil, you suffer. But God is far more sophisticated than this. God has multiple uses of blessing and suffering. But they have reduced God's greatness to just you do good and you get blessed. You do suffering and you get punished. In other words, they've taken the almighty God and they've reduced him into a vending machine. So you put evil in, ching, ching. And outroll suffering. And you put good in, and blessing comes out. 
So God's response to their view of him is he shows them that he is far more sophisticated than they think. He's saying, I do things, Job, that you will never understand or comprehend because, Job, you're not God. You were not there when I created the world. You were not there when I brought everything into being. You cannot possibly know all the ins and outs of creation because you are not God. And therefore, you do not know all the ins and outs of how I use suffering. Now, you might think that Job is, that God is being really rude to Job and mean to Job. And you probably think Job will run off. But one of the glorious things about this passage is God actually knows what Job needs to hear. And you know how you have some friends who you just need to tell them the truth? You just need to be straight with them. And you know that they'll actually love you more because of it. So Job's response is chapter 42. And he says this. should also be a slide there. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you. And you make it known to me. I'd heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. This last verse, verse 5, so I think the first week I mentioned my favorite verse was um, when, when Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. My second favorite verse in this whole thing is verse 5. I, have, I heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes have seen you. See, what it's saying is that Job first thought he knew God. See, to Job, God was a machine. You just do good and you get good out. You do bad and you get suffering out. But now God's, his view of God has just gone poof. Like God is not a machine. God is a living, breathing God. He's personal. He's relatable. And so the way he does things is not always going to be cookie cut like a machine. And so Job says, I first knew you like this. But now the rest of my senses have caught up and I've experienced you. I heard you by the hearing of my ear, but now I see you. And it's glorious. Now I want you to grasp what's going on here because throughout the Bible, God has different uses for suffering. It's not just for punishment. In Psalm 10 and many others, the psalmist cries to the Lord because, bless, uh, because it seems like the evil are being blessed. The evil are prospering. And there are also occasions in the Old Testament where old people, where evil people, not old people, evil people are blessed so that God's people would feel jealous and then return back to him. So God has multiple uses of suffering. He's not a vending machine. Now, if you are going through suffering, you might, you might actually treat God like a vending machine. You might shout things like, what did I do to deserve this? Or you might know in your mind that you are saved by grace, but when you are going through the mill, when things get really rough, you might say, why am I going through this? Why me? And when life gets particularly bad, we sometimes tend to do this. We, we compare our lives with those around us. Have you ever had that? 
Yeah, amen. <laughs> and we look at everyone else and somehow their life just seems to be rosy and ours doesn't. And so we tend to feel like there is no one on the planet going through what we're going through right now. Have you felt that? You know what I'm talking about? In those moments, we look to God and we say, God, why? Why me? What have I done to deserve this? My friends are far worse than I am. Let's be honest, you say these things in your head. My friends are far worse than I am, and yet I'm going through it, and they're not. What have I done? And we tend to do the reverse as well. We tend to, when life is going good and we get blessed with stuff, we go, I must have done something, right? (laughs) For God to give me this. We think like that quite often. So I want to finish off with four things. So the first thing is, I want to say this. Let me tell you what Job is saying to us. We don't know why we suffer, but we need to know that God has his reasons. And that's important. So what should you do when you suffer? I think there is a big reason that God takes Job to creation when he puts Job in his place. And it's because he's showing Job that he is actually looking after creation. He shows Job that unlike Job, he does know all the ins and outs. In other words, he shows Job that he is actually in complete control of everything. And therefore, if he's in complete control of a little bird that is flying in the sky, and if you read in Matthew's gospel, it says that God cares for all the animals. And then it says in Matthew chapter 6, it says, but you are greater than these. God cares for us more than the animals. And if he's looking after those, surely he's looking after us more. Which means we've got to say to ourselves, when we are struggling, we've got to be like, God, I don't know the reason, but I trust you. If you are really in control of creation, I can trust that you are looking after me. And the second thing is we need to remember that God is loving. Last week, I, I reminded us to look outside of ourselves when we suffer. When we're going through the mill, we tend to do things where we block out the rest of the world. You know, when life is, is going great, we praise God for all the good things that he's doing in the world. We praise him for, like, healing our auntie so-and-so. We, uh, we just thank him that our uncle has got a job and that you praise God that he's looking after the family and he's giving us education. But the moment we suffer... Pfft, All of that disappears from our minds and we're left thinking, God hates me. Right? The biggest thing we tend to forget is that he's actually done something amazing in history. He sent his son, Jesus, to die. And that's a massive loving thing. I mean, think about how loving that is. If I said to you that if I said to you that I wanted to adopt you as my child, and you wanted proof that I that I, I love you as a father, and I said I'll give up my own daughter to have you as my child. Wouldn't that be the most loving thing in the world? I'm going to say that again because someone just walked in, and you didn't get the impact of that statement. So I'm going to say it again. <laughs> if I said if you wanted to test how loving I was in adopting you, if I said, I want you to be my child, and I said, I am willing to give up my own daughter, in fact, I'm willing to have her die for you so that you can be my child, 
How can you think of anything more loving than that? There is nothing more loving than that. And that is the one thing we forget when we're suffering. We forget that God, I mean, you can picture God in heaven going, they're getting angry at me and saying I don't love them. Have they not seen what I did for them? So God is loving. The third thing, if you are a Christian, there is one suffering that you don't receive which everybody else receives. And that is punishment for your sin. Other people will be punished in this life and in the next for their sin, but you won't. Why? Because when you become a Christian, Jesus takes that punishment for your sin in, on himself. So at the cross, Jesus takes your sin and he puts it on himself and God punishes him instead of you. So because of that, you are free from suffering because of sin, because of what Jesus has done. And it, it happens in this life and the next. You will receive eternal life. So if you are here and you are not a Christian, you are going to experience suffering that we won't experience. And so the one thing that you can do to get around that is to give your life to Jesus. Because in a sense you do experience it, but it's experienced on Jesus in your place. And that's an incredible thing. And the one thing that we have as Christians that you don't is that our life will never end. Our blessed, our blessed life will never end. Yours will. Because you'll have 60 to 70 years on this planet and then you'll go to hell. Whereas our life will continually be blessed because we'll have God. And the final thing is, and we're going to show a testimony now for this point, is uh, if you are a Christian, you might then say, well, why do I still suffer? And the answer to this is you suffer because God loves you. And you're like, now, as I'm saying that, you're probably thinking that's crazy. Why would someone who loves you make you suffer Well, it says in Hebrews 12, it says that, I'm just going to read it quickly. It says, verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard literally the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So in other words, if you think of it this way, if God was not loving, he would let you stay as you are. If he's a loving God, he will actually guide you into godliness. Think of it, think of, I'm going to use that illustration of a parent. If I never disciplined my daughter, can you imagine how horrible her life would be? But the fact that I discipline her I don't, I don't smack her bum out of like hatred towards her. I don't like smacking her bum when she's naughty. I do it because I love her because I know what is best for her. And it's the same with God. He sometimes has to take us through the mill in order to make us into the people he needs us to be, which brings glory to him. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to share a testimony. So uh, James is going to stop sharing my presentation and he's going to put Rhea on the screen 
And Ria is actually joining us on Zoom right now, so she's going to be here. But if you shout, hi, hi Ria, she's not going to hear. Well, she might hear you because this is on. She will hear you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but then you're going to have to mute this as well, James. You're going to have to mute this mic when Ria plays. Otherwise, it's going to make a funny noise on the speakers. I grew up going to church. I go to a Christian school. I felt like Christianity was forced down my throat. I went to Frog and Impact and Bible Studies, and I knew John 3 verse 16 off the top of my head. I thought I was the perfect Christian. Later on in life, I was about 14, 15 years old, and I started questioning everything that I have been taught. All of a sudden, everything didn't make sense. I remember talking to, my, I remember talking to Leah, my life group leader, and asking her about faith and religion. I asked her about agnostics. I swear I became an agnostic for a good two weeks. About a year or so later, I rejected the idea of religion as a whole, but I didn't tell anyone about it. In this time, I realized that I was never really a Christian. All throughout my life, I've experienced loss, the hardest and most tragic being the death of my sister. After my sister passed, I resented God and, Christ and Christianity even more. I wondered why a God who claims to be love would put me and my family through so much pain and suffering. As time went on, I started looking for distractions and ways to fill the gap that was left in my life. I overstudied and I went out with my friends and I came to church and I read and I wrote. I did everything that could distract me from the pain. This was until I realized that all these distractions are temporary and without a higher sense of stability, which can only be brought by God, I would forever be yearning and searching for something to fill the void. As I said before, I wondered why God would cause my family so much pain. At the time, I didn't know what to think. I was so confused and lost, but recently, because of coronavirus and the hard lockdown, I was forced to do some deep introspection, and I realized that God always has intentions that are filled with love, because he is love. You're probably thinking, how can a 17-year-old girl taking her life be an action that God did with the intention of love? But because of what happened and the trauma that I experienced, I am able to help and be there for others who were in similar situations as she was. Her death sparked a conversation that needed to be had and gave people the opportunity to speak about mental health and receive the help that they need. Before my sister passed, I was already struggling with mental health. After she passed, I was able to get the help that I need. I went to a, to a psychologist who referred me to a psychiatrist and I was diagnosed with, with depression, anxiety and panic disorder. And because of that, I am able to receive the right treatment and the help that I need. The reason that I am here today, wait, the fact that I am here today and I am, despite everything, and I am able to share this with you was a blessing. I think that we wait for big blessings to happen so that we can say that we've experienced the grace of God. When in reality, the grace of God is in both the big and the small blessings. Never take that for granted. If there's anything you take away from this, I hope it is that sometimes we don't understand why God does certain things or why we suffer. But everything happens for a higher purpose and God is and always will be unconditional love. I'll leave you with this verse from Proverbs 3 verse 5. Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Thank you.